Hey, Dee, how was your weekend? <laughs> My weekend. I spent Wednesday through Sunday at the Fling in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania and surrounds. And we visited wonderful public and private gardens, got together with old friends. It was fun, but it was exhausting. <laughs> it looked fun from what I could see from the pictures posted on Instagram, except the rain part. Yeah, but- <laughs> yeah. Tropical affi- tropical storm Ophelia came blowing through. Thank you. But that's okay. But we know from experience that sometimes seeing a garden in the rain is is also good and a rare privilege for us. Right. I mean, all those reflective surfaces, It that was beautiful too. And getting out of the rain and sitting in someone's garden shed is pretty magical. And I want to give a special shout out to Carl Gerson's from Longwood Gardens, who organized the fling and kept all of us cats in line because we joked about hurting cats and moving forward. And I'll be posting more on my blog, and I'm sure I'll have some thoughts to share here too. Care to get us started? I care to get us started. Welcome to the Garden Angelus, where we talk about flowers, veggies, and all the best dirt. I'm Carol Michael from Indianapolis, Indiana, where I have a suburban garden measured in square feet. It's about a third of an acre. And I'm Dean Ash from Guthrie, Oklahoma, where I garden one and a half acres out of seven and a half, and I'm way out in the country. We call ourselves Garden Angelists because we are evangelists for gardening. We love gardening and we want others to love it too. Yes, we do. And we aren't afraid to spill the beans and tell all of our gardening secrets, the good, the bad, and even the ugly. But that's enough of who, what, when, where. Let's move on to this week's episode. I think you should tell us about your garden update because, well... I didn't do anything. Well, I'm not going to say that I had a tremendously productive week in the garden. We didn't have any rain. I did do some weeding. I'm picking the last of the cherry tomatoes. They're still out there going strong. I mowed, but only in front where I've been watering. Um, I did plant four brand new hydrangeas that were sent to us from Proven Winners. They're varieties that are coming out in 2024 and When I was down at the local greenhouse, I was telling them about them and they were looking in their catalog book because, you know, they like to have the latest and greatest. So, um, but more about those next spring when they're up and going, but they're, they're looking pretty good. How about your garden while you were gone? So it kept threatening rain. There were some crazy clouds and stuff, but um, we didn't have any rain. There were higher temperatures than what is the norm. Apparently Oklahoma hasn't gotten the memo that we're into fall. Um, but, uh, Bill, my hydrangeas came too while I was gone and Bill kept them and, um, my pots watered for me. God bless him. And we'll talk more about the proven winners hydrangeas later. All right. Let's play favorites. Do you want me to go first or you? You can go first. Okay. Munstead Wood Rose, which I heard they've discontinued at David Austin. I don't know if that's true. Um, if they did, I can see why, because it does get black spot. It's not quite as, um, resistant to that as some of the other roses. Now I'm not saying that's a fact, but it, I have three of them in my garden and right now they are blooming with abandon and they're that perfect blue red that yes. goes so well with other stuff. People think red doesn't work well in the garden, but I think blue reds work really well because they have enough blue in them to not just stand out like a sore thumb. Anyway, Munstead Wood is blooming. And as we know, Munstead Wood was Gertrude Jekyll's garden. And so it's just wonderful and it smells good and it's beautiful. And I can see it from where I'm sitting right now. 
Very nice. So my favorite this week is I found a toad. Oh, little toad. Sitting on top of a rabbit statue. And it was fun because when you have a toad, you feel like you're doing something right. So there you go. No I found kidding. a toad. Toadiana. Toadiana. That's so cute. Anyway. Yeah, I love my toads and my lizards. I even like my little snakes. They aren't bad. They don't have problems. I wrote a blog post about Toadiana. So of course we'll we'll find a way to link oh. to it. Sounds good. Why don't you do that quote? But now in September, the garden has cooled, and with it, my possessiveness. The sun warms my back instead of beating on my head. The harvest has dwindled, and I have grown apart from the intense midsummer relationship that brought it on. Robert Finch. I love that quote. Isn't that it is true? It is true. You kind of let go and like, uh, you know, whatever you do, garden, just I'll be back and I'll be back later. <laughs> but anyway, Robert Finch is a, a nature writer, born in New Jersey, grew up in West Virginia. He's lived on Cape Cod since 1971. And his first book, Common Ground, A Naturalist Cape Cod in 1981, was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize, which is very wow. a big deal. Anyway, he has a radio show, or he had a radio show, I don't know. But anyway, he's a big Big nature writer, and I had never heard of him, so he goes on my list to check out one of his books and see what he's all about. Yeah, he also won the Edward R. Murrow Award for Best Radio Writing. Cool. Anyway, our flower. I'm excited about our flower. (laughs) Well, I chose Mums last week on purpose because I knew you were going to Longwood Gardens. Oh, my god! And when you think of Longwood Gardens, if you don't think about their huge chrysanthemum festival, tell us about it, Dee. Okay, so they took us behind the scenes, which was really fun. And we got to see several different sections behind the scenes of different things they do and different displays. The Chrysanthemum Festival, I think it started, I wrote down here somewhere that it starts, I think, on September 30th, and then it runs through probably October. And um, that these aren't these aren't just mums in round shapes. Oh no. You know? Oh no. These are not just ball mums. And we're actually going to link to a post about the chrysanthemum festival from 2018 or maybe a couple of posts that explain how it works. They display mums in the Japanese form because they do fans of mums, but right. they also do these standards which they call I think single stem display. And so what they do is they disbud all the side shoots and they disbud all the side blooms, the buds. And then as they, I guess you can't disbud a shoot, but you know what I mean? They take off the sides and then they disbud it. So you have one big giant flower. And some of these, they grow, you know, four feet high, three and four feet high. And then, so they start way ahead. They start about two years. We, we saw the horticulturist who's kind of in charge of the mums. And I'll get his name. Um, I didn't get his name in my notes, but I'll get his name for our newsletter. He explained to us how they make some of the shapes. And one of the questions I asked him was, how do they make those spirals? Because you're familiar with tree spirals, right? Um, kind of, where they you get the tree to kind of twirl around the stake or whatever. To twirl around a stem or whatever, yeah, or something, or a pole. They do that with mums. And I was like, Okay, so mums are super brittle. Anybody who's bought a mum and it's in its oh, perfect yeah. little ball shape knows that we always end up 
you know, breaking off a piece, but before we get home, so we stick that to the back of the garden. And I said, so how do you deal with this very brittle plant? And he smiled and he said, okay, so here's what we do. He said, as we let it grow long, you know, he said, we, we gently twist it to break the inside of the stem, the cells in the inside of the stem without breaking the outside. Oh my gosh. And he said, it causes them to curve. And I was like, what? I mean, that was the coolest. So they, I wish we had been there in time to see the festival, but they were just starting to put the mums out. And I took some amazing pictures of, uh, of the conservatory, which was amazing. And Carl, I think, is in charge of the conservatory, if I read that right. And they do some amazing displays. And I actually have that on an Instagram reel. So y- mums, so cool. And more more interesting than you might think. Ex- right? Yes. And because I, I did sort of a deep dive on mums too. And so let's start off with the question that everybody asks in the fall when they buy that mom is, Will it come back? And the answer is, it depends. It does depend. It depends on a lot of your climate. Yep. Uh, Did you plant it in a container and then right before the freeze, throw it in the ground? It's probably not going to make it because it needs to establish (laughs) roots, especially in my climate. (laughs) Well, I mean, they come back really well here in Oklahoma, but um, not if you do that. And not if you, I mean, the thing you have to remember about containers is they're two zones colder than your zone. And so if you're zone five or if you're zone seven, like in my case, I'm seven A. So it would be five A. No, they're not going to make it probably. Um, Plus you'll forget to water them over winter. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's just a lot of conditions. And here's the thing. They'll never look the way they did when you bought them to put them in that pot. Right. That's correct. Because they are. They are shaped and disshaded and they use, sometimes they use hormone treatments. Growth regulators. Growth regulators to make them stay Mm -hmm. dwarf. And so um, I will say, if you can get a mom to establish, they do make a nice fall flower in the garden and they're much more free form, obviously. Uh And I, I think they're very nice. We've, we've talked in the past about the Sheffield, Sheffield pink, I think it is. Uh, yeah, the Sheffield pink, and then there's Ryan's pink, which may be a Sheffield type. Um, there's Kathy's rust. There's There are several mums out there that are really perennial mums that you just plant in the ground. And in fact, I bought two more of Ryan's pink because I wanted to establish them up by this tree that's up on my hill. And it'll do really, really well there. Now, they aren't going to look like the mums that you see in the catalog. In fact, right out here by my window, outside my in my kitchen border, I, in the spring, I have that all bordered with daffodils, right? And around the daffodils, I planted, I think it's Sheffield. And so Sheffield will do really well. Will's Wonderful is another one that also perennializes really well. But those are a different type. I mean, not a different type of mum, but they're just a mum that perennializes well. That's all I'm going to say. That, that. That's a good thing to say about it. Now, we will mention, of course, if, for you to have the uh, the grown that we have to have in each episode is I did write two articles for family handyman on moms. <laughs> of course you did. Our <laughs> uh, moms perennials, which is a question people ask and how to care for moms. But sure. There are people that are so obsessed with moms D that they joined the national chrysanthemum society. Yeah. And I, yeah, there are. I will. And you asked the question, are moms the next Dahlia? Or if you're from England, Dahlia. 
Well, and I, you know, I don't know. I mean, things go in and out of style. There was some talk about that at the fling that there are just some plants you can't find anymore that you that do well in your garden. Like here, this is off topic, but Russian sage, a tall Russian sage, just the plain old Russian sage is very hard to find now. It does really well in Oklahoma where you don't do anything with it. And there are mums are like that too. I mean, they seem to be just a seasonal crop that they bring in for fall, but I don't know. I don't know if they will or not. I mean, I love them in my garden. I grow them all the time. You were going to talk about the national collections. Well, too. in Great Britain, obviously, there are people that have national collections and they had what they, they, they called shared national collections where I think two or three people like between them, they have everything. But you can't really. Well, mums are big plants. Yeah. So they take up a lot of space. I mean, they spread. The ones that I said they're very perennial, they're spreaders. So uh, it would be hard. You That's all you'd have if you were the only one with the national collection. Well, and, and there are 13 types ca- classified by the National Chrysanthemum Society. So. Okay. Which if you want to get into them. You, but anyway, we can go back. And I I did some checking in. Uh, Matt Mattis's book, Mastering the Art of Flower Gardening, because we know he likes to grow some very special mums in his greenhouse. He grows some, yeah, he grows display mums, and he also does the disc budding and does the single stem ones, which is really fun to watch. Yeah, and he says that the the mum is the oldest cultivated flower going back 3,000 years in China. Uh, Still very popular as a cut flower um, because he says... Looks good for a long time in a vase, and I it I does. think it's still the number one cut flower, but these cut flowers are coming from uh, not around here. You know, also, um, the remember in high school when it was really popular mm-hmm. to have a mum for your um, homecoming corsage? Um, those are spider mums usually, right. and that's one of the classifications. And um, I saw a whole giant display of spider mums at Longwood and they were all bright yellow. And it took me back because my colors at my school were purple and gold. So of course we had great big yellow mums. It was just the coolest thing. I love them. I think they're beautiful. I love the way their foliage smells. I love the scent of their foliage. I can it has that kind of smell. Take it or leave it. Yeah. Now Matt Mattis it's, will say the best time to actually plant mums for perennializing mm-hmm. the garden is in the spring. And I would tell people that too. But when are you never going to find a mum for sale? In the spring. Yeah, so, but you'd have to order them. If you ordered it, you could get it in the spring. And and if you want to perennialize them, perennialize them in your garden, that is what I would recommend. Well, if you're in Oklahoma, you can perennialize certain ones, but you're going to have a hard time finding them. And I probably wouldn't try to perennialize the ones that have been clipped within an inch of their nope. lives. I would go someplace like Bustani Plant Farm and I would buy Ryan's Pink or, you know, get a cutting from someone who already has perennial mums in their garden. Um, I will say this, Will's Wonderful died out in my garden eventually. It got into too much shade and it just died out and I've been looking for it again. So, but the problem is you don't think about mums in the spring, do you? No, and I had a Sheffield Pink that showed up and it was in way too much shade and I looked for it again this spring because I thought, well, I'm going to transplant it to a more sunny location and it was gone. Yeah, it happens. So don't expect them to stay in your garden forever. I mean, sometimes they don't. So you looked up the in flowers and their meanings. Yes. Uh, by Karen Azoulay. 
I hope I said that right. Um, and chrysanthemum means cheerfulness under adversity. I love that. And then you also, oh, you're picking up that book. Well, yeah, because um, and you, I wanted to say, so she has on here that the autumnal flowers believed to hold yang energy and attract good luck into the home. Mm-hmm. Aren't mums native to China and Japan? Yes. So. Yeah. So that makes sense. Um, and I think it's interesting that they're native because they're so not native here. No. And then we also, you also looked up um, chrysanthemums and the story of flowers and how they change the way we live by Noel Kingsbury, which is another book that we have, we go back to again and again and again. And he said that in some cultures, mums, which bloom and fall are a symbol of death and should never be given to people and only used at funerals, which I did not yeah, I think I knew that in some cultures they were a symbol. So of it's interesting how the mom can mean cheerfulness under adversity, which is like, you know, I see a sick person or whatever, and they want a flower to perk them up. It's fall. You want to get them a nice mom. But, but sure, then Noel Kingsbury not. says, oh, no, that's only for the funeral. <laughs> Don't be giving that to somebody. So... <laughs> You know, it's it's a rocky world out there. It is. It is. We should mention one last thing that in Japan, they also have huge chrysanthemum festivals. It's their emperor's flower is the mum. Yes. Yes. And and that's why when the people at Longwood, the the senior director of uh, displays went out there, he brought back lots and lots of pictures of the fans. And so now they do the fans as an ode to Japan, and then they do their own thing too. They also do this thing where they make these huge metal structures, and the mums go up and over the backside. That means those mums are super long. I'm telling you, that was, I like mums, but now I like them a lot better. After seeing all the stuff that they were able to do with them, I was really impressed. Well, when you think about how culturally and historically significant they are for Asian cultures, and then the things, I mean, I think that our grandmothers and our great-grandmothers, they they were looking at a completely different flower than the the puffs of moms oh, yeah. that we see in the fall. Yeah, they've done lots and lots of different things with them horticulturally, so, they, you know, breeding-wise. They're a very interesting plant. Are you going to buy some moms this week? Of course I am. Well, maybe, I don't know if it'll be this week. I usually try to wait until... um the first week of October to buy my mums because I need it cooler outside. And we should also mention if you're going to buy mums for display, don't buy them, just buy them in bud when they're barely showing color. Don't buy them full bloom unless you want to replace them again and again before right. Halloween. I always plant yellow mums in my front border um, because I just love that. I love that bright color in my front border because it's shady and they, and also mums for display don't mind a little shade here. That is true. It's hot. That is true. So there you go. All about mums. Yay. And I did plant them at the front entrance, barely showing color. They are still barely showing color, but they are live and no one has stolen them. And I'll see about, yay. I'll see about maybe getting some for my front porch. I haven't decided yet, but anyway, mums, all of my perennial mums that are out there, are all just at that stage where they're sending up their little buds. Cool. So that'll be fun. Cool. That'll be pretty. All right. So shall we move on? We shall. I would rather sit on a pumpkin and have it all to myself than be crowded on a velvet cushion. Henry David Thoreau. Me too. 
Yeah. And we had another quote there and I thought, oh no, we must use the pumpkin quote because that is on the vegetable topic. Because you know what else people don't think about until fall? Growing pumpkins. pumpkins. <laughs> yes. We get a lot of questions from people about growing pumpkins in the fall. And it's like, mm, too, late. too late. Next year. Are you going to get a pumpkin and carve it for Halloween? I probably won't this year. Um, she's not, you know, Maddie's not big enough to have a knife yet. <laughs> and she'd want it. So, no, probably not. Uh, I kind of like them whole. I got to tell you a story about knives and toddlers. Oh, my gosh. Well, that is no, it's a good story. My great niece and uh, she and my great nephew were born two years apart on the same day. Their birthday is the end of this week and they're in their 20s now. But anyway, I -hmm. I walked in to the kitchen and my they were my mom was living with him and stuff. I go in there and they are um, peeling peaches to make a pie or something. And that two-year-old niece, great niece had a paring knife and she was peeling peaches. And I looked at my sister and I said, what? And she says, she does a pretty good job, doesn't she? So that little girl at two was able to use a paring knife to, to peel peaches. So. Wow. That's impressive. It is impressive. <laughs> now, Maddie, Maddie has actually used a paring knife. She's three and a half. So she's used the paring knife to um to take off strawberry tops, the stems of strawberries. But a paring and knife is not a carving knife for sure. No, it's not a carving knife. And you know how hard they oh, are. Oh my to carve. gosh. I feel like I'm gonna cut myself trying to carve a pumpkin. So naturally I have one of those fake foam ones with a light inside that I bought like 20 years ago. Plug it in, still works. So yeah, exactly. So Why don't you start us off with um, pumpkins? So the thing about growing pumpkins is you have to start in the spring. It has to be completely frost-free. They don't like any frost. You need a lot of room. You need a lot of time. You need a lot of fertilizer. You need a lot of water, a lot of patience. You got to tend these vines so that when the pumpkins start to form, if pumpkins start to form, because we'll talk about sometimes you just don't really get anything. Right. You don't want tons of pumpkin on the same vine. You really want to kind of uh, eliminate some of the extra pumpkins so that vine is growing two, three at most. Otherwise, it, it just can't sustain it because you think about how big some pumpkins can get over the course of a growing season. Right, exactly. The other thing is some people say, and I was complaining about this earlier this summer because I did have this kind of a squash pumpkin-y thing that Burpee sent me to grow. And it never seemed to develop female flowers. There were only male flowers. And you said, stuff them and and with something and fry them. And, and eat them. Well, you stuff them with ricotta or you can stuff them with cream cheese or whatever. And then you make a batter. And the batter is usually got a little bit of um, garbanzo bean flour in it. And you, but, but that's not always true. People use other batters and kind of create a wonderful, um, I can't think of the word Japanese. It's a Japanese style of frying, but anyway, I'm sure someone is in the background listening to us thinking, why isn't D thinking of that word tempura? Um, anyway, you can make kind of a tempura batter and then you can fry them and oh my gosh, they're quite the delicacy. So does the, does the pumpkin blossom add any flavor or is it just a, a, a convenient casing, a vehicle. a vehicle. No, it definitely it definitely creates flavor okay. for sure. Okay. 
Well, you gave us a couple of links. One is a, a Facebook post that somebody made about taking Hubbard squash blossoms. Yeah, that was on family dinner, which is this great, um, because Hubbard squash blossoms are a lot like pumpkin blossoms. And a lot of places use pumpkin instead of just regular like summer squash, because the male blossoms are bigger and longer. So, and they're more substantial so that when you fry them, they don't turn to mush. And so on family dinner, they used Hubbard squash, which is similar to pumpkins. And then also Farmer Jones, who we love, he did stuffed squash blossoms on his um, website. So we can link to those. I think that's pretty cool. And then guess who wrote an article for Family Handyman? I don't know. Would it have been moi? Yeah, it was you. And it's about how to grow a jack-o'-lantern. So if, and here's our advice for growing a jack-o'-lantern is do make it worth your while by picking a variety that you can't just go down to the grocery store and buy because it is going to take a little bit of effort. Although I say that and then somebody will say, you know, well, I just threw the old pumpkin on the compost pile. And next thing you know, I had a pumpkin vine and I had more pumpkins than the neighborhood could use. Yeah. Well, I, on my compost pile, there is a giant pumpkin vine. Um, but it's never produced a female flower. So there, there you, you go. go. They are not as easy to grow as people think they are, but you can totally do it. And I have grown them in the past. And then you said there are popular pumpkin varieties. Here's my advice. If you want pumpkins for display, just go buy a pumpkin. But okay, go ahead. So and then the other thing, we got to bring up something nasty. Oh, squash bugs? Yes. In Oklahoma, big problem. You know big, what? Big problem. They're going to be a problem in Indiana. It's just going to show up later than it does in Oklahoma. Right. They show up early here and they really, really love pumpkins. So um, it's up to you. I mean, if you want to grow one, that's just fine. So, okay. So I just got an email from um, the public relations person at Longwood because I wrote her this morning. She and I rode back on the bus together. And I said, Uh I want to know who the guy is who gave us all that wonderful information. She wrote me right back and she said, his name is, um, okay, hang on. Let me make sure I get his name. Sorry. Hold on. It's just not coming up. It just came up a second ago. So let's see. Oh, there it is. Okay. That is Jason Simpson, horticultural specialty grower. So there you go. And I told her I had, I had a typo in my email and I said, I'm sorry, I was in a hurry. I know English grammar. And she said, she said, no judgment podcasts need to be made because she knew I was in a hurry to get the info. I can't tell you how nice people are to deal with in our industry. They are very nice. Yeah, I would totally agree. So shout out to Longwood Gardens, shout out to the public relations person there. That's Jordan Um, Cole. Jordan. And then also, shout out to anybody that wants to try to grow pumpkins. Why don't I Amen. do a quote and take us to the bookshelf? Yes, because we love pumpkins, but we don't grow them regularly. The garden is the place I go for refuge and shelter. There I feel protected and at home, and every flower and weed is a friend. And that's Elizabeth Van Arnhem again, and that's in her book, Elizabeth and Her German Garden, 1898. Which is the classic. So, that's her that's the book she's most famous for. And you you chose this this week. We were sent the new and revised and expanded edition of The Writer's Garden: How Gardens Inspired the World's Great Authors. And how long ago did we get the original one? It's been a while. 
Oh, I would ask you know, a question that she's going to have to look up. I think the original one thing came out in 2014. So this is by and Jackie Bennett and the photography is by Richard Hansen. And she's added 19 new authors and gardens to visit. And it's a bigger book now because we talked about this this morning. Mm-hmm. It's now a coffee table sized book and there it would it be, and she's showing a picture of it. And um, we may actually put this up on our YouTube channel. Um and she's showing, and Carol is showing the original writer's garden, which I think both covers are beautiful. I think both books are beautiful. And the truth is, is I'm going to keep both books on my bookshelf because I'm excited that they came out with 19 more gardens. And I like the original book too. I think it would be a really great present for so many people for Christmas. Yes. If you like reading and the old authors, I'll call them the classics, the Agatha Christie's, Virginia Woolf, Rudyard um, Kipling. I'm just reading off Jack London, Vita Zach Boest. She has Ernest Hemingway's garden. Oh, cool. I didn't know Ernest Hemingway had a garden. I'm going to guess well, that it is spare. It is spare and it has trees. Probably well, not a lot of flowers. <laughs> as she says, and by the way, the reason I picked the quote that I picked is that's mm. how she starts the book. Oh, nice. So sometimes... The garden was the place the writer went to write. Uh, Virginia Woolf is famous for having a writing shed in her back garden. That her husband built for. Because he was Some, really the gardener. We should say that. Wasn't yes. his name Leonard? Yeah, he was. Um, he was really the gardener. And she, you know, she had a lot of angst and stress. And she loved the garden. And she would walk through the garden to get to her shed. I'll never forget that. That was one of my favorite parts. And in in some cases, the garden was just a refuge that they went to, you know, when they wanted to escape the world. And they actually could write anywhere. And I put Agatha Christie, read about her garden. She was kind of in that category. Basically, she said if she had a sturdy table on her typewriter, she could write anywhere. And her second husband used to take her to to the Middle East for his uh, architecture, architectural. Archaeology. (laughs) archaeology digs and she would just you know i can imagine like an upended shipping crate with her typewriter on top and she wrote several of her mysteries there and she had a huge garden which i would love to see one day i mean she has a huge greenway it's called huge property and there's a famous story about agatha christie that my writing teacher because you know my degree is actually in it's in professional writing it's through the journalism department but did that did you hear the pun right I got it. Um, My writing teacher, Carolyn Hart, who's a very famous mystery writer, she said um, Agatha Christie was one of her heroes. And she would always tell in class about this story where Agatha was out in her garden and she was working and someone said, and she said, oh, I've got it. I've got the, I know exactly. I know the ending to the book. I know who did it. Right. That and and someone was standing there and they said, oh, I can't wait to read it. And she said, me too. I haven't written it yet. I love that. That's I love that fun. story. That is funny. Yeah. This new book has uh, Frances Hudson Burnett of The oh, Secret Garden. Love, love, love. She had a garden. Because, yes. And I think it was closed for renovations when she, when Jackie wrote the first book, and now it has yeah. been included. And so I will say there's uh, with their photographer took special pictures just for this book. They have a lot of archived images and things, so you can kind of get a picture of the various writers, Mm -hmm. some of them who actually predate photography. Yeah. But anyway, just gives you an 
insight in, as it says, insight into the lives and creative processes of beloved authors. So I think I, I love it. Oh, I, I opened it up to Jack London at Beauty Ranch. And the quote is, the air is wine, the grapes on a score of rolling hills are red with autumn flame. The afternoon sun smolders in a drowsy sky. I have everything to make me glad I am alive. Jack London. And then the picture is, of course, of grapes at Beauty Ranch Yes, um, in the fall. In California. I, it, is, it is an exquisite book. It's probably one of my favorite books we've done this year, which we've had several. They're, they are really producing wonderful stuff. Yes. And I will say, Jackie Bennett, she's an excellent writer, author. She has nine books, and I think I have several of them. Shakespeare's Garden, I have that one, and I brought that Mm -hmm. one in to show you. I love that book. I'm not going to pick it up again because it's there. These are, I will say, coffee table size books, which to do justice to the gardens with the photography and stuff, they need to be that size. They do because you can't really get a good, oh Lord, this is going to be a pun, picture of them. Otherwise, you know, you need those big full-size pictures. Plus it just look good on someone's coffee table. Right. And if they're a writer, if they're a gardener, if they're both, if they just care about famous writers, this is the perfect book for them. That is. And that is The Writer's Garden, How Gardens Inspired the World's Greatest Authors by Jackie Bennett. And let me say that this book, I was going to look at my little sheet here. This book is out. coming out the day we're recording this, September the 26th. Oh, so nice, people should be able nice. to get it. So okay. like we said, great gift for yourself or for someone that would like that kind of thing. Perfect. All right. Your quotes next, D. Okay. Here it is. September is the month of maturity, the heaped basket and the garnered sheaf. It is the month of climax and completion. September. I never tire of turning it over and over in my mind. It has warmth, depth, and color. It glows like old amber. Patience strong. And you researched Patience Strong. I did. And her actual name is Winifred Emma May. Winifred Emma May. She was a poet from the United Kingdom, and she died in 1990. Right. Patience Strong was her pen name, and I guess that's a pretty well-chosen pen name. It is. That's a good one. So, our dirt. You went back, and actually, I didn't have time to read this because I was on the trip, but it is by Margaret Roach, who we both think is a good writer who, you know, ha- she really goes into gardening from a different angle. You know, she was the editor of Martha Stewart's magazine for a while, and she just does some wonderful things. And so she's written a piece on all the- a viable alternative to the conventional lawn, question mark. Cornell may have found one. Yes. Ooh. So at oh, Cornell, Cornell University, they have been testing sustainable options for replacing backyard gardens grass um right and so she has a very very nice article about how there are 40 million acres of lawn in the united states Mm -hmm. um and then you know what the impact would be is if we didn't have to cut these things every week or water them to keep them going and so cornell has been working with uh, a lawn that would be an alternative so it stays short and they have mostly put in oat grass which i'm not familiar with oat grass, Danthonia. I am. 
So it's Danthonia. They, they grow it here. In fact, it was for sale at Bustani. I saw it for sale. There's also a variegated version of it, but keep going. Well, the 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 lawn <laughs> changes with the seasons because it has spring, summer, and winter, not winter, but fall flowers. And they've just been observing this quarter acre lawn for, for quite some time. And their criteria for what to put in the lawn is it had to be able to be started from seed. So... She mentions that a lot of sedges, which Mount Cuba Center has been studying, studying. That's the word I want. They to do use. that a lot. Trialing. Mount Cuba is all about trialing. You can't start That's those from do. seed easily, apparently. Okay. So they had to be able to be started from seed. And they talked about in the article, which we'll put a, a gift link for. That yeah, I just got it for us. Thank you. Um, okay, can I just say I'm looking at the picture of this lawn at Cornell in springtime. It's and beautiful. And it's just covered with flowers. Um, and then it later turns to the oat grass, which I may have been wrong about that. I may have been thinking about sea oats. I don't know. I thought I saw oat grass at Bustani. Nobody nobody go there and then be mad at me because it's not there. Um, I, I, I haven't had a chance to read this yet. I cannot wait to read it. So the thing they noticed was there were some species that they started off with that kind of disappeared mm-hmm. as the as the lawn matured. And then some plants kind of just arrived, like violets just arrived. Well, violets live here just arrived too. Yeah. I mean, you and I have talked about that in the spring. I actually have violets under one of my oak trees. Oh, wow. A monarch just flew into the kitchen garden right next to me. Um, the, the oak tree that is just beyond my little kitchen border is it's just filled with violets in the spring and they make me so happy because then they kind of just hang on and then, you know, don't look like much. And then they'll be back next spring again. Yeah. Now two downs. I don't know if these are downsides. Uh, It grows six to eight inches tall or you're supposed to keep it mowed to six to eight inches. So your conventional lawnmower does not mow at six to eight inches. So they said you could use a like twice a year. You don't even have to mow it every Twice a year, you could use like a, a weed whacker to kind of knock it down or an mm-hmm. old fashioned scythe. This, you know, is that I'm saying that right? Yes. Yes, you're saying that Which right. Which always looks like a very deadly thing to have around. So I'm not sure about that. So anyway, it's good that people are working on it. And Margaret always writes an excellent article. And we, we should point out that she was recently uh, honored at Wave Honored. Honored at Wave Yeah, she was. Mm-hmm, she was. And that's really great because um, she's done a lot for Wave Hill. And so they had her as an honoree. Um, she deserves it. Margaret works very hard and she researches very hard. Um, I was going to say, I was sitting here thinking, sorry, I drifted off just a bit. I was thinking about how in Pennsylvania, when we were in Philadelphia, all of their lawns have um, weeds in them. Which all is, of them. Which is I good. didn't see a single, I didn't see a single lawn with single species grass in it, like it is here. Cool. I mean, Bermuda is the grass of choice um, in Oklahoma, which everybody here hates Bermuda grass. And I'm actually going to try to go to a symposium this Saturday about how to get rid of it in places you don't want it by some native plant people. We'll see how, you know, we'll see what their ideas are. Um, but I, I'm torn because there's so much great stuff to do right now. I mean, the Hort Society is having their big meeting up in Stillwater. So I'll have to see which one I go to. Anyway, um, there were just, there was um, clover. I saw a lot of clover uh-huh. in lawns, which you and I are big proponents of clover. I have clover. And, you know, if you don't use herbicides in your lawn, if you don't use weed and feed, 
and other things, those little species will come back. Yeah, I have clover, I have plantain, I have dandelions, I have, I have wild strawberries, violas. I have violets. They kind of fade out as the as the summer gets hot, but they'll Yeah, they do. When it gets hot, you don't see the violas anymore. And then they bounce back in spring. And you do have to work on keeping them out of your paths because they're spreaders. Yeah. And I tell people little mice carry their seeds around. The dandelions are a problem for about a week and a half to two weeks where like, I want to mow a couple extra times because if a neighbor looks over the fence and sees how many dandelions, but then they kind of disappear for the rest of the summer. Why is your neighbor looking over your fence? I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I don't think, they I don't should. think they are literally looking over the fence, but if they, <laughs> but you know what I mean? They, I mean, they do look ratty tatty a little bit, but you know, then you get wonderful things. And one of the places we went to, and um, I'll have to think about where it was um, because, oh, I know where it was. It was at Stonely. That was another wonderful garden we went to where they're just putting in natives now. So there are lots of trees that aren't native because they were planted way, way back. Um, but now they're starting to put natives and they ended up with native orchids in a lawn. And now they're wow. down there encouraging them. Yeah, that was pretty cool. That is so cool. I think we're making a turn, Carol. I, I think, think the world making is making a, a turn. turn. It's right. a good turn. Here's a quote. Outside yes. the leaves on the trees constricted slightly, they were the deep done green of the beginning of autumn. It was a Sunday in September by Ali Smith, who is a Scottish author, playwright, academic, and journalist. She is, according to one person, Scotland's Nobel Laureate in Waiting. And not to freak anybody out, but when this episode goes live, it won't be Sunday in September. It'll be October 1st is Sunday. October 1st, which is hard to believe. So that brings us to our rabbit holes. And um, I, you know, I went down a lot of rabbit holes this weekend because I did a lot of research on different things. And one of them was the mums. Yeah. Because I did some research trying to get the information. Um, and then you did, a, you did a rabbit hole on mums too, a deep dive. So I'm just going to say that that was my rabbit hole this week. Although my head is obviously by my wanderings today. My head is so full of information because when you get back from a gathering like this, where you get to see all these new things in horticulture, you're super excited and your head's full of info. That's true. What about you? So do you remember the Lost Lady of Garden Writing, Hannah Ryan, that I we talked about? Because there was yes. an autobiography, or not an autobiography, listen to me. A biography. A biography written about her. So anyway, this weekend, an estate person from Mobile, Alabama sends me an email and says that they have a very rare copy of Hannah's mother's book, Lady Southern Floors by Mary Ryan. And did I want to make an offer on it? Wow. So I clickety, clickety, click, did some searching and found that there's no copy for sale online. So it's not like, oh, well, all the copies for sale online are $100. So, you know, and it was published in 1816. Right. So I wrote back and said, it's probably out of my price range, and perhaps you should talk to the author of the Hannah Ryan biography. Or I told her, Terrace Horticultural Books up in St. Paul, I bought from them. Um, they might like to buy it. And then she probably was like, why didn't you just make an offer, lady? But anyway, because she pointed out it was very rare. So she'd done her homework. Sure. Then later, she mailed me back this morning and said, you know, basically... Thank you for the information. 
And I wrote back and said, oh, by the way, why don't you also consider just donating it to a library that specializes in old rare books related to gardening and horticulture? Mm-hmm. There are tons of them out like there. Like the one, yeah. So, for me, anyway. like the one we went to in a, where was it? I went to we one went of those. We went to one in, uh, <laughs> in Seattle at the University of Washington. That was cool. We went, we've been to a couple, I think. And you actually suggested. Uh, we went to the Atlantic Botanic Garden to the Cherokee Garden Library. That's the one that I was thinking of. That would be a great place. Of. That would be great. That's where all of Elizabeth Lawrence's library exists. Which is why we went Lock, and, and put on gloves and filtered through her books because we're big fans. We've done some cool things. They left all the ephemera inside mm-hmm. those books, you know, so if she had a little grocery list, they left it in Which there. Which is really cool. The, that's where she should donate this book. By the way, you were missed at the fling. I was not missed. Yes, you were. Several people said, why isn't Carol here? Why isn't Carol here? And I was like, I don't know, because she doesn't like to fly. All right. So anyway, what do you want to talk about it's, next? Well, I just want to say if somebody has a real big desire to either own a copy of Mary Ryan's Lady book. Southern Florist. Yeah. I can put you in touch with this estate agent who has one for sale. Or, by the way, Google Books has the uh, image of it, so you can read it online as well. So There you, there go. you go. So garden, garden commissions. commissions. I, okay, my garden commission is to get those hydrangeas out of their pots and out of my garage and in the ground. And I do have some places for them because I did not replace all of my shrubs that were burned in the fire. And so that's a good thing to do. And I will be weeding today. And, um, you know, I'm also going to stop and smell those Munstead wood roses. I'm just going to say as soon as we're done here. All right. So here's what I wrote. I'm going to slowly tend to the garden and ruminate about the past season and what's to come this fall. I'm going to stand there leaning on my rake, dreaming, scheming, occasionally reaching down to pull a weed or pick a pretty flower while praying for rain, which we might get this week. All right. Yeah, we're supposed to get rain next week. I sure hope so. So and that I'm, is our episode. And I'm trying to look around Masha to do it because she missed me so much. Yeah. How about you thank everyone? Thank you for listening to the Garden Angelus. I hope you've hit that subscribe button so you don't miss a single episode. We publish every week on Wednesdays at 12 a.m. Eastern Time. If you listen to Apple Podcasts, we'd love a five-star review. That helps us get noticed by others. Could you also share our podcast with your friends? Word of mouth is still the best way to get the word out there. And be sure and check out our show notes for links for more information about today's topics, plus links to our own websites. And if you're smart, you'll subscribe to our Substack newsletter, The Garden Angelus at Substack.com, also linked to in our show notes, because if you do, you get a link to listen to the podcast a whole day early. And if you want to help support us, use those affiliate links. If you buy something after clicking through on them, we earn a small commission and it costs you nothing. Or you can set up a monthly subscription through Buzzsprout or make a one-time donation through PayPal. And we want to thank everyone who has done so. It was lovely to chat with all of you over the Garden Gate. Bye until next week. Bye, everybody.